Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Grant Baldwin here. I'm so excited to have you with us for episode 464 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, my friend Joey Coleman and I are going to dig into Joey's career, his speaking, book writing, launching a business that adapts to the world around us. Now, if you haven't heard of Joey, you should know that he's just not your average dude. He is a two-time author who's focused on helping companies connect the intrinsically human pieces of our lives to create exceptional customer experiences and empower your team to deeply connect and engage with each other. Joey has spent years helping companies take their intention to the next level to work with talent all over the globe. In fact, he's got case studies from all seven continents. Yes, you don't have to check a globe. That is all of them. We're talking about even Antarctica. So even if you aren't a human-oriented expert, we're going to dig into the nuts and bolts of how Joey has built his speaking business, what he's learned for the several years that he's been at it now. So thanks for tuning in. we got a great conversation here. Let's get right to it with Joey Coleman. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Today, uh, chatting with my good buddy, uh, Joey Coleman. Excited to uh, chat with him. Uh, one thing we're going to be talking about is a new book he just released, uh, but also just going to be talking about some of the uh, shifts, changes he's seeing in his business, especially post-COVID, things that he's noticing, things that he's sharing with some other speakers. So uh, excited to have him here. Uh, he and I were just catching up for the past 20 minutes or so before we hit record. And like, dang, we got to record a podcast. So we got we to get into this. So Joey, good to see you. Good to have you back here again today. Oh, Grant, it is a thrill to be back. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to everybody who's kind enough to be listening in. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because I I know you've got a finger on the pulse of all things speaking and love jamming about speaking with awesome rock stars who are in the speaking industry. Well, one thing we were talking about before we hit record here was kind of like what life was like through COVID and then since then. And so uh, you had mentioned even just some like personnel changes of just like moving around and kind of figuring out that. But like what what speaking... What did speaking look like in the past 18, 24 months or so? And then shifts that you're kind of thinking about evolving uh, within your own business? Because again, if we go back a few years and the, the height of COVID, I think it was just kind of like nobody really knew anything of what was going on. And we we're like, virtual is going to be here forever. And, and you know, and virtual still part of the business and, you know, again, still kind of evolving and changing. So how has the past couple of years played out for you? And what are some things that you're, you're thinking about or seeing differently in your speaking business today? Well, Grant, you know, it's interesting as a guy who's spent the last 20 years thinking about customer experience and employee experience, that's often the lens I come to the world with. And so when I think about the customer experience of the folks I'm serving, whether those are audiences, meeting planners, or the person signing the check, those are kind of the three audiences I think about serving. Um, what I feel has changed is the expectation for what they're looking for. Um, I think we see that in two ways. Number one, 
I'm not seeing, at least in my business, as many of the, hey, we're going to have an event in 18 months and we're ready to book speakers. It's more of, hey, we've got an event coming up in three weeks and we just decided that we're going to have speakers. Are you free? And so the, the timelines feel like they've really compressed in general. Number two, I think that the expectation of the event coordinators, the meeting planners, and the people in the audience has changed because we spent two years watching presentations via Zoom or live streams. And it's a little bit different when you're in this little box and you're gesticulating in here and keeping things tight and trying to keep the energy high and manage the chat at the same time and make sure everybody's feeling good. When you're on stage, it's a different environment, or at least in my opinion, it's a different environment and different experience. And as a speaker, a different responsibility. You know, one of the things I often think about is how much is it costing for these people to be in the room? Mm-hmm. And when you're doing a virtual speech, I can see the dollar signs running above everyone's head as far as their normal billable rate and they're spending time with me. But when you're live in front of an audience, it's like, okay, how much did they spend flying here? How much are they spending on their hotel, their meals? How much are they valuing or missing their family or the people they have back at home? And as a result, I think speakers are being called to be even more dynamic, more impactful, and a greater return on investment if they're addressing someone or having the pleasure of addressing someone in person and live. And so we're recording this, uh, you know, partway through 2023 at this time. And so in your own business, how much, uh, if at all, is virtual still a part of things? It's definitely still a part. I see it in two ways. Number one, I'm still probably doing two or three pure virtual gigs per month. Um, the bulk of it is, is has moved back to in-person. I would say, you know, 80% is in-person, but I still have about 15%, you know, 20% that is virtual. I'm also seeing that it almost every live event I go to, there is a hybrid component. There are Mm. attendees who are not in the room. And so one of the things I work really hard to do with meeting planners is to explore how can I make those people watching at home or those people watching on a video in the future feel like they are part of the conversation. So getting a screen that shows the attendees at home that's visible for me in the same way a confidence monitor is. And at least once or twice in the talk, getting down in front of that screen and really trying to engage with them or looking at, can we get a screen that is showing uh, the live chat so that as things are going and I'm hearing laughter in the audience, I can see the comments in the chat and be referencing those. I find that when you do that, it transcends the barrier between who's in the room and who's watching virtual and kind of avoids what I think often comes out with a lot of events, almost a second class citizen feeling for the people on virtual. It's like, oh, I'm a fly on the wall watching. That has value. Don't get me wrong. But to me, it is harder to maintain the attention of a virtual participant than an in-the-room participant. You know, Mm in-the-room participants, there are social cues. If I'm sitting next to someone, I'm on my phone while there's a keynote speaker, I'm feeling a little bit of judgment or self-pressure of "Mm, maybe I should put my phone down. So it's a little easier to keep them. When we're talking virtually, you could have three other screens open. You should be, could be responding to emails. I could think you're typing in the chat and really you're placing an order on Amazon. I mean, there's any number of things that could be happening. So to me, when you've got a virtual audience, your ability to captivate, your ability to engage and intrigue is at an even higher requirement and higher standard than if you're in person. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So one thing uh, I'd be curious about as well is you you touched on that the uh, the the booking cycle has condensed and compressed significantly. So how has that changed, if anything, for you in terms of just marketing and planning? Because one thing we were talking about before was you know you you oftentimes would know a hundred days out pretty well locked in what your schedule was going to be, and you know like okay, I know like, a few months from now like. The kids are going to die and the wife, we're all going to be able to eat. We're going to make it, you know, and now you may look at it and be like, dang, like things are a little light, but knowing that those gaps may fill in as you get a little bit closer. So is there anything that you've shifted or changed about just from a a marketing perspective for booking gigs? I I would say there's two things that I would flag. Number one, first and foremost, I am married to the most amazing woman in the world who's been an entrepreneur longer than I have. So her tolerance and ability, her resilience, her ability to navigate the fact that we don't know maybe where I'm going to be 30 days right. from now in terms of my physical presence as it relates to the family has been a huge win for me personally. And I I so empathize with speakers who are also trying to be in committed relationships and potentially raising children in this era of increasing uncertainty and flux that makes for difficult challenges. And I personally feel that's an aspect of the business that most speakers don't spend a lot of time thinking or talking about publicly. They, they talk about it with their spouse and maybe their closest friend. But yeah. I think that's something that all of us as speakers could kind of acknowledge and celebrate the folks who are holding things down while we're off on the road uh, even more. The second thing I would say is I definitely had moved away from some of my coaching and consulting pre-COVID. And then when COVID came along and there weren't in-person events, I brought some of that back. And now I have kept a portion of that. So whereas before I had really tried to move to about 99% speaking, 1% Mm -hmm. non-speaking activities, now I'm trying to keep that at closer to 70-30 or maybe even 60-40. To your point, just as a buffer to even out that, you know, shifting sands of, well, are there going to be speaking gigs in the fall? I'm not sure. I got a couple booked, but I got some plenty of open dates. What's it going to look like? That type of feel you can even out if you have other streams of income or other services that you're offering. How are you, when, when you are thinking about all these different services that you may offer, and there's a lot of people that may be in a similar spot of, I can do a keynote, I can do a small breakout, I can do a three-day seminar or session or training, I can do consulting, I can do coaching. And so whenever you are working with a client and trying to figure out what exactly that they need, what their budgets are, what opportunities may exist, how do you kind of balance, here's the menu of options and kind of guide them toward, here's what would be best that's going to help meet their needs and also you know, realistically help my bank account and and my business. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've tried to do, Grant, again, this is, I want to caveat this or preface this with my lens is always customer experience, right? So I'm really always trying to say, what is the best experience I can create for the customer at this moment? I had somebody reach out uh, recently, large organization. They've got about 150 employees spread across a couple different locations. And they were like, we want to completely revamp our customer experience. And in order to do that, we want you to do a one-hour virtual keynote. And I was like, look, I'd be happy to do a one-hour virtual keynote, but that is not going to achieve the result that you want. You've just told me you want to completely revamp the experience. They've gone from 20 employees to over 100 employees in 18 months. 
I know, having been in the industry for 20 plus years and been working in customer experience, that things are breaking all over the place. Before we even got on the call, I knew yeah. that things were breaking. This isn't a criticism of them. This is an acknowledgement of the reality of what hyper growth does for customer experience. And so I said, look, we can absolutely do a virtual keynote and I'd be happy to do that. But I would feel like I'm taking your money. And I feel like I was taking your money because in an hour, can I get your people pumped up and think differently? Yes. Can I get them to maybe make some small shifts in their behavior? Yes. But if you want lasting change, what you actually want to hire me for is a 10-week coaching program where we'll spend an hour on the phone every other week. So 10 sessions, 20 weeks, and we'll build out a complete life cycle. Now, that's a, it's a very different investment in terms mm -hmm. of dollars. But here's what I know. You're average client value is X dollars. I'm guessing your average profit margin is Y dollars. And I'm watching the person's eyes get bigger. They're like, how do you know that? And I'm like, yeah. because I did my research before this call. Like, I know your industry. I know how this works. If we get two clients over the course of the next 20 weeks to not fire you, because I'm guessing you're getting fired by about 30% of your clients. Now, at this point, their jaw hits the floor. They're like, how do you know that? And I'm like, again, I do my research. My job is your experience, right? If we get two of those to stay, you pay for everything you're going to spend with me, and we'll have a new system moving forward. They're like, well, gosh, this sounds like a much better deal. Now, here's uh, the interesting thing. Price-wise, that's a 5x differential between a one-hour keynote and what I just offered them. Yeah. So my revenue went up 5x from what they came wanting, but I know for a fact that their impact is going to be 50x compared to what they thought they wanted. Again, I don't say that from a place of ego. I say that from a place of you've got to know your craft and you've got to know the ROI you provide. This is something I see a lot of speakers doing, Grant. They're really excited to get up and tell their story on stage. And that's wonderful and that's lovely and that can be cathartic and therapeutic. And I, I'm, I'm all about that. But there is a difference between being that kind of speaker and being the kind of speaker who can go and say, I'm going to charge you X for a speech and your ROI is going to be Y dollars, which is a multiple of X. Mm. I, I think a lot of meeting planners and a lot of the folks who are signing the checks aren't as interested anymore in, hey, we're going to hire someone to get the team fired up for an hour yeah. as much as they are. We want systemic lasting change. We want improvements that go beyond when everybody's in the ballroom or on the call virtually watching the presentation. We need to see actual behavior change, which usually takes more than an hour. You touched on, you know, some speakers, uh, especially early on in careers, will make the mistake of getting on stage. Let me tell my life story. And and and, and speaking almost becomes kind of, of therapy for them in front of a room of strangers, uh, which is not serving the audience and there's no benefit to the client whatsoever. Uh, so what are some other types of things that you have noticed that, you know, mistakes that the speakers make, whether it's new speakers or speakers kind of earlier, even, you know, later in their career of just like, ah, you know, here's, here's one thing that just kind of bugs me that speakers do that like they really probably shouldn't do based on my experience, you know, my limited knowledge, here's something that, or, you know, a pet peeve or whatever that you see that the speakers could, uh, could consider changing or improving. Well, Grant, I would say that in my worldview, there are three audiences for every speech. There are the people that are in the room or virtually watching your speech, kind of the traditional definition of audience. Mm -hmm. There is the meeting planner or event coordinator who is managing all the logistics of your participation. And then there's the person who's signing the check, 
who's paying for you to be. And usually those are three totally different groups of people. And by the way, usually the person that's signing the check and the meeting planner, if they're in the room during your speech or if they're watching, they're usually distracted and paying attention to a lot of other things. They're hoping that the audience is paying attention and getting value, but they're using a different metric. Every presentation I give, I try to think about what do each of those three separate groups want? What do they need? And how does my speech serve them? So what is the ROI? You know, for the check signer, it's going to be a much tighter dollar ROI than for the person sitting in the crowd. But for the person sitting in the crowd, it's going to be a behavioral ROI. Can I change their behavior in a way that helps them improve their life or their career? All too often, I I get brought in to speak to sales teams. You know, we've got our annual convention. Let's get Joey in and he'll get everybody fired up about taking better care of our customers in the future. That's great. And I'm happy to do that. And that helps the organization. But what helps the individual sitting in the chair is me being able to say, I'd love to get you higher commissions. I'd love to get you more referrals. I'd love to get you more repeat business because I know that's going to impact your pocketbook and that's going to impact your longevity with this organization. Now, those things translate to a benefit to the owners, the shareholders, the, the organization as a whole. But if it's only about making our system more efficient and more effective, the typical employee is like, okay, thanks, but what's in it for me? Like what's, mm-hmm. what's the value? And so I always try to think of my speeches as speaking to the various needs and desires of the different audiences. When you think about those three different audiences, so the actual audience, the person that's sitting in the chair, the meeting planner, the person kind of running things, and then the person that's signing the check. How do you think about that from a marketing perspective, especially like with your website, with your demo video, uh, anything like that of who am I actually trying to reach and communicate? Because I could have three different, each of those people coming to my website or watching my video and each of them have three different needs and three different you know, responses that they may have in terms of interacting with my stuff. So how do you kind of think about who are you trying to communicate to? Whose attention are you trying to get through your marketing materials? Grant, I love this question. As it relates to my marketing materials, I'm most heavily focused on the meeting planner and the check signer. Because most audience members aren't picking the next speaker. Yeah. It's usually someone else. Now, that being said, when I show up at the event, I am really focused on creating a remarkable experience for the audience because I know that that's where my referrals and my lead gen comes from. They're going to go back to their company and be like, oh my gosh, we were in Vegas and I saw this speaker. He was amazing. We should get him to come speak to our whole company. That is going to happen more often than the meeting planner or the check signer saying, we had Joey at the annual meeting in 2023. Let's get him back for 2024. That happens. But I'm then trying to get two people to decide I'm worth coming back for. Whereas I might be speaking to 500, that's 500 potential leads and referral sources. So it depends on where we are in the process. My marketing and sales are directed towards meeting planners and check signers on my websites, in my emails, and my communications with them. But live at the event, it's really focused on creating a remarkable experience for everyone in the room. One thing we talk a lot about internally uh, and externally, like with with our students and uh, a drum that we beat a lot is that as speakers, we want to solve one specific problem for one specific audience. And so a mistake a lot of speakers make is, you know, I speak to everybody about everything, you know, and that's just ineffective. It doesn't work. It's really, really hard to build a business as a buffet. And so I'm curious, like in the nature of what you do, where you've built so much of your career on uh, helping with customer experience, um, 
which on one hand is like a, a specific topic. On the other hand, like who has customers? Everybody has customers, right? right? And now uh, starting to go into, which we're going to touch on here in a second, your new book where you're helping with employees and who has employees? Every business has employees. Uh, and so how do you kind of think about, are there certain industries that you you try to target or uh, how do you think about like, I, I'm really, really good um, with this niche. One of the things you touched on earlier is maybe on a pre-event call or on a sales call, you've done your homework on one specific industry that maybe you are less familiar with. So how do you kind of think about like these big, broad topics, helping customers and helping with sales and helping with employees uh, and making sure that it's still customized to a specific industry and where they're at? Yeah, I think of it in two ways, Grant. Number one, it's my personal belief in my worldview that humans are humans. Regardless of industry, customers have certain things that they're going to do. I don't care whether you're buying a loaf of bread or a tractor. Like you're, you have certain desires, innate uh, feelings as a human being. And the same holds true for employees. If you're a brand new employee, I don't care whether you're the CFO or the call center rep, you're going to have certain human desires that you want. What I try to do is have as the foundation for everything I do, the commonality amongst humans. Then I layer on top of it some of those research points that I was referencing earlier. And what I'll do is before a pitch call, I'll spend anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours trying to understand what is going on in that industry or in that specific business. And then when we start the pitch call, I ask some very specific targeted questions to figure out what are the big challenges and struggles they're having right now? For example, in the employee space, chances are they're having one of the following three struggles, if not all of these struggles. They're having a hard time finding great talent. They're having a hard time getting that talent up to speed. And they're having a hard time keeping that talent engaged and retained long term. Now, when I throw out those three buckets and I say, which of these is a problem that you seem, seems to be the most acute a problem you're having right now? I get one of two responses. They either pick one of those things or they say, oh my gosh, Joey, all of it. I actually find that it's easier to close the deal when it's one of the things than it's all of it. To your point, when it's all of it, it's like everything's on fire. We're having all kinds of problems. Yeah. Okay, great. Then I dive deeper to say, but where in the process, you know, how many employees are you losing every quarter? How many employees are you trying to onboard every week? You know, I dive deeper to figure out if I can help them come to a more specific answer. If they know their specific answer, now our conversation shifts to me pointing out specific things that I'm going to be able to help their audience with to address that direct concern they have. I love it. Uh, all right. So uh, I touched on this, but uh, you've got a new book that is out now, Never Lose an Employee Again. Uh, you have another book that came out. It's been a few years now since uh, Never Lose a Customer. Um, both phenomenal resources. Definitely highly recommend everyone check those out. But since so much of your career has been focused on thus far, the, the customer side, customer experience, what was the thought process on doing something employee related? Do you feel like this is a massive shift or pivot away from it? Do you feel like you're trying to reinvent yourself or what's kind of the thought process? Yeah. Well, the thought process actually, Grant, is that it's the other side of a coin. Uh -huh. You know, customer experience is one side of the coin. Employee experience is the other side of the coin. I had been in the customer experience world for about five minutes before I realized that you can't have a great customer experience if you've got disgruntled, frustrated employees. Yeah. That being said, when I was writing my first book, which was back in 2018, I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago. It's been a minute. It has. I realized that in most organizations on the planet, there are divisions or parts of the organization that are focused on customer experience, usually sales, 
and account support or account services. And then there's a division focused on employee experience, which is usually HR. Yeah. Now, you and I both know that in every division, there are employee issues because you have a boss. And if you have a boss or somebody that manages you, that is employee relations. Even though you might be in the accounting department or in the transportation department or the purchasing and ordering department, you're still having employee issues. But I didn't want to create a scenario where I was trying to educate people to the fact that they actually had employee experiences in place other than HR while trying to convince them that they should pay attention to this because then I'm jumping two hurdles. So instead, what I did is let's focus on customers first because most organizations are pretty clear on who their customers are and where their problems are there. Now, the second book, Never Lose an Employee Again, is kind of the companion book that says, great, you've got all these customer experiences figured out. What are the pain points on the employee side? And as fate would have it, I think we are in an era right now that is more complex when it comes to employee relations than any other era in human history. And I know that may sound hyperbolic, but the reason I say that is 50 years ago, it is highly likely that you or I worked for an employer that was within 30 miles of where we lived. That was mm -hmm. kind of the norm. Yeah. Now, if you work for an employer who's within 30 miles of where your home is, it tells me one of two things. Either you work in a very specific hands-on business or for a very small micro business that has a physical footprint, or your talent is not as in demand as either you've realized or the marketplace has realized. Right. One of the biggest conversations my clients are having with me right now is they're calling and they're saying, Joey, our people are being poached by international companies that are coming and saying, we want somebody who's based in the U.S., who is a native American speaker as opposed to English speaker. They actually speak American, not English, yeah. right? There's a slight distinction there. And they're saying to them, we will match or exceed your existing salary. Plus, we'll give you all the vacation dates we get in the home country where we operate. And in most places outside the United States, they have better vacation, better benefits than we have here in the U.S. Yeah. How are you supposed to compete against that? And everybody, what is, there were a ton of absolutely horrible, sad, heartbreaking things that happened during COVID. But one thing that happened, which I think is a net positive for humanity, is almost every organization and industry on the planet realized that your people don't have to be within 30 miles of your headquarters to produce value for your enterprise. Yeah. And the unlocking of that means that now employers are trying to figure out how do we keep our top talent and how do we find the best talent in the, on the planet? Not the best talent in our town, not the best talent in our industry, the best talent globally. And I don't think that shift is going away. And I think as a result, it is going to be an employee's market for the foreseeable future, I'm thinking a good 20, 30 years minimum until the robots have caught up and they can do all the things to replace the humans. Now, I, and I personally, again, I can completely attest to that here at the Speaker Lab. Uh, we have employees in, I believe it's 26 different U.S. states and in five different countries around the world. And so uh, I don't know if I if there's another team member within 30 miles of my own house. Uh, yeah. And so we've been that from the beginning. But yeah, I, would, I mean, there's certainly pros and cons to it. But Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm yes. not saying this is easy. Let me be You're abundantly right, 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 clear. Right. I'm not saying it easy. But what I am saying is this is reality. Going totally. forward. And you can fight. And I, I, I work, deal with plenty of leaders who are like, we got to get our people back into the office and this is ridiculous and people working over their computers. And I don't even know if they're working. 
I get it. I get your concerns. And more importantly, I see you and I appreciate that this is a different world than the one you came up in, which is what often those statements are about. It's like, I had to go through the school of hard knocks and these kids have it easier than I did. I, I get that. And you also came up without an iPhone. But everyone has an iPhone now. So should none of us have cell phones? Because you didn't have a cell phone at the beginning of your career. Should we just do away with all cell phones? No, that would be insane. However, let's play the cards we're dealt. Let's live in the environment we live in. So with a new book, uh, the and it seems like the even the the original book, Never Lose a Customer Again, was a was a real big part of your business. How do you think about books overlapping with what you do as a speaker? How do they fit in? Uh, because for some speakers, they they view like books are a huge huge part of it, and in many ways, it's kind of you know I, I workshop a talk, and then that material that's refined over time becomes a book. Um, you know, research has been a big part of of what you've done as well. So it's not just here's some pithy ideas. Uh, so just how do you think about books in general and how they fit into your your work as a as a thought leader as an expert? Well, for me personally, Grant, my books are traditionally published. So the economics around my book are very different than somebody who's self-published or hybrid published. You know, when I sell a copy of my book, it's you know, lists at $30. I'm probably making one to two dollars off of yeah. that book. Whereas if I'm self-published and I sell a book for $30, I might be making $25, $26, per book. So it's a very different business model for me because they're traditionally published. I see my books as doing a couple of things. Number one, I see them as a mark or an imprimatur of credibility. Basically, if a book has been vetted by a traditional publisher, that means that someone other than the author thought it was worth putting time and money behind it to bring this book to the world. So I do see a lift in terms of when I'm going for speaking events and especially larger organizations are deciding between me and someone else. When they can see two Wall Street Journal bestselling books, I think they turn around and say, all right, well, there, there's some substance here. There's some, some reality here. Number two, I see my book as a way to reach people that I can't. The thing that was the tipping point for me. I had thought about writing a book for years, but the thing that tipped things over on my first book was I was talking to a friend and he said, Joey, you love speaking. I was like, I love speaking more than almost anything on the planet. I love being on stage. He said, great. He said, do you think you will be able to give a speech for every human on the planet? And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. But no, it's, it's practically impossible. I'll never be able to do it. And then he was like, well, how many people would you like to get your message in front of? And I was like, oh my gosh, all of them, as many as possible, anybody who it can help or serve. And he said, then you need a book. And he was absolutely right. Because what has happened is I have readers in, you know, I think we're at north of 100 countries at this point who have read my book. Wow. Those are folks, these are countries, I've only been to 53 countries. I'm trying to get to as many as possible, but I've even set foot in only half of those countries where people have read my books and it has impacted their personal lives and their professional lives. So for me, I look at it as a way to give back and extend my reach and extend my impact from a service point of view, as opposed to a marketing point of view. Now, does that mean we also sell a good amount of books? Yes. And that's great. And I love that. But for me, it's more about the outreach than the uh, revenue generation in my existing business model. 
How has having a book impacted your speaking business? I think it's impacted my speaking business in a number of ways. Number one, every speech that I give, there's a potential physical giveaway for the audience. I go to everyone who books me for a speech and I'm like, hey, can we get books in front of your people? Can we do a signing? And I know there are some speakers that charge for book signings. I never have and I never will. Let me that be abundantly clear. Totally ludicrous right? to charge and, for something And like that. you know what? I, I don't judge other people's business model, yeah. but I will tell you that will never be my business model because if somebody wants to come up and have me inscribe their book so that that sits on their shelf for five years, 10 years, 50 years with their name, I am more than happy to do that. And also when I said, I was doing a book signing with a friend recently and he was like, you spend about five times as much time signing a book as I do. And I said, that's your choice. If someone is going to come and say, I'd like your book signed, I'm going to give them more than my signature. I'm going to give them a little message. I'm going to write their name in the book. I'm going to put two or three sentences. Now, that means my book signings sometimes can be three or four hours long. But I'm okay with that. I also have signed copies that are just there if somebody just wants the signature and move on. But to me, it's about what is the full experience that I can create for the reader, for the audience member. The other thing that I found it's done, Grant, is there have been multiple cases where someone has read the book and has said, we need this message in front of our people. And so it's been basically a $20, $30 business card that has served as a marketing tool to get people interested. We uh, we touched on it, but again, uh, never lose an employee again is the new book. Tell us about it, uh, and what's the who's it for? What's the nutshell? So the book is for I think one of two types of audiences: either the person who is the leader who's trying to figure out what is the future of our employee experience, so from a strategic point of view, a CEO, a head of HR. Or for the person who manages direct employees, who has a team that they're trying to build and cultivate and foster. Because the book walks through the eight phases of the employee journey. And as a little preview, four of those phases happen leading up to the first day on the job. So there's four full of the eight phases happen before you get to the end of your first day on the job. That usually falls in the purview of HR or, you know, the department that is responsible for people. The next four phases are what keep people engaged and retained long-term, which is usually your direct boss and maybe your boss's boss. And how can you build the type of culture systematically that promotes the personal and professional growth and development of your people? I think the era of you come to work, you give us work, and two weeks later, we give you a paycheck. I think it was flawed that that was the only thing we were offering in the beginning. And I certainly don't think that's going to be enough going forward. Your employees, the top talent on the planet who might consider coming to work for you, want to grow personally and professionally as part of the job. Now, I get that there's some leaders going, but Joey, I just need them to do their thing. I get it. I understand. That's what it was like for you coming up. But someone along the way took an interest in you. Someone along the way became a shepherd, became a guiding star, became someone that hooked on and said, you matter. I'm going to give you extra attention. I'm going to give you extra focus. And that's what has led your career to develop the way it has. Every organization has the opportunity to do that with every employee. And this book details over 50 case studies from all seven continents that show you how. All seven continents. All seven continents, even Antarctica. I think that's an open loop. Grant, I may be the first. I'm not aware of any other business book that has ever been written that has a case study from all seven continents. 
Fun fact. Fun You're going to have to get the book to check it out. You're the Antarctica hey. case study in the book. <laughs> uh, Joey, thanks for the time. If people want to find out more about you, uh, where can we go? Best place to find me is at my website, joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old you know. Uh, Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation. Joeycoleman.com. The books are called Never Lose a Customer Again and Never Lose an Employee Again. They're available wherever you buy books. And I'll put in a little plug here if I may. Grant. If you like reading books physically, we've got a hardcover copy. If you like reading books on your Kindle or on your app, you've got an electronic version. And we also have an audio version of both books that I narrated. So if you've enjoyed the sound of my voice, I'll happily read the book to you while you're doing the dishes or going for a run or doing whatever you do when you listen to audiobooks. Hey, anything that Joey puts out, I highly recommend and endorse. So definitely check this out. Joey, thanks for the time. Always good to see you, my friend. Hey, thanks, Grant. I really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening as well. Hi, friend. Are you ready to get serious about taking your speaking business to the next level? Maybe you are someone who is looking for ways to book more paid gigs, or maybe you're trying to figure out all the different things that go into building a successful speaking business. Or perhaps you are an experienced speaker who wants to scale your speaking business to multiple six figures. And so if that's you, I would encourage you to visit thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash apply. I want you to book a free, no obligation call with our team. And if you're not quite ready to take that leap. I don't want you to hesitate in checking out all the free resources that we have available to you on our website, including this podcast. So head over to thespeakerlab.com. Again, thespeakerlab.com. Find hundreds of blog posts, how-to guides, podcast episodes, email scripts, proposal templates, and so much more. Finally, I got a big favor. I would love for you to leave us a rating or review for this podcast. We read every single one, and it also helps other speakers find valuable free resources that they can use to build their own speaking careers. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 